2006, February 16th. Today is Lecture 30, Active Galactic Nuclei, which will begin in just a moment. Today's lecture is covering the subject of active galaxies and quasars. We're sort of finishing our theme of island universes. We talked about the big picture all the way up to large-scale structure, and yesterday we met how the role of gravity is so important in sculpting galaxies, but how interactions may be key to understanding both the assembly and perhaps the evolution of galaxies. It's one of the important pieces of it. Today's topic, when I used to give this talk, you know, this particular lecture a long time ago, has always looked like, well, we had to throw it in somewhere because it's an important part of galaxies. And there's another interest for throwing it in. Most of my research is actually in the area of active galaxies and quasars. But in the last few years, that research has changed tremendously because we've actually begun to understand that the phase of an active galactic nucleus and the presence of supermassive black holes in centers of galaxies is not some kind of sideshow freak. They, in fact, are strongly related to the growth and formation of galaxies because we've learned there are some very important correlations among galaxies and the properties of their central black holes that were in many ways un unexpected and whose explanation seems to be pointing us in the direction of important clues as to how galaxies actually came to be. So while active galaxies, of course I like the field because it's what I've done a lot of my research in, turns out to actually be much more fundamental. There's clues to the evolution of galaxies in here. But really at this point only clues. We don't, I can't tell again a coherent story about galaxy evolution from this, but it's clear the phenomena are related. Now as a consequence of, of putting this lecture together, this is actually one of the most difficult. One is I know too much about the field, so I tended to want to say too much, so I had to kind of ruthlessly carve it down. But even as I went through my revisions last night, I realized that there were certain ways in which I'd organized the lecture that I didn't like. Unfortunately, the web notes had been committed. So what you're going to find in your web notes is I cut the material down, and I, there's going to be gaps in your web notes. And when you run into that, and those of you who have the printouts, just put an X through it. I'm going to modify the notes online later today to reflect these changes. I was making them up to the beginning of this lecture. I tried to really boil it down to the real important points. You'll see a little bit of alteration. The basic stuff is there. The key ideas are still preserved. The questions I'm asking on the test are still going to be covered. But a little bit of a difference of presentation. Whether it succeeds or not, we'll see in just a moment. The key ideas today is to introduce active galactic nuclei. These are these powerful energy sources that are found in some galactic nuclei. They come into various types. Quasars, the most luminous of these, Seifert galaxies, the low luminosity versions, and objects called radio galaxies, which emit most of their power out at radio wavelengths rather than X-rays or optical. And we're going to see those different types a little bit. But that actually isn't as important as to what's going on physically at the center. And that is, what is the power source behind these amazingly bright objects? Quasars are thought to be the most powerful and energetic objects in the entire universe. They outshine everything. Even supernovae fall by the wayside when you look at, act at active galaxies in terms of just pure, sustained, energetic power output. What is powering such a powerful thing? And the answer will turn out to be accretion of matter onto supermassive black holes. This again was sort of, we were led to this conclusion because we couldn't think of anything else at the beginning, but now we see that the actually active galaxies are just the top of, tip of the iceberg of a deep phenomenon having to do with the interior structure of galaxies. A question we left hanging from discussions of the Milky Way and Andromeda, where we saw supermassive black holes in the centers of those galaxies, is how did they get there? How did they grow? How do you make something that big? We're seeing in active galaxy research the answer to some of those questions beginning to emerge. 
I can't answer all those questions today, but that's certainly what I do when I go back to my office and I'm not doing class things, is working on this particular area. It's very exciting right now. Now, to understand active galactic nuclei, I need to add sort of one little bit of geography, if you will, to galaxies. Namely, what do I mean by the galactic nucleus? Just like the nucleus is the center of an atom, so too the nucleus of a galaxy is its very exact dynamical center. It's right down there smack in the middle. Now, actually, it turns out that I don't mean just the geometric location of dead center, but I mean the central region and its immediate surroundings, anywhere basically from 100 parsecs, maybe down to a parsec or so, to the smallest scales that I can see. It's really not clear where we draw the line between, yeah, I'm no longer in the nucleus, I'm out in the bulge or something like that, or the disk. But I typically draw that line at anywhere around a few hundred parsecs. The reason for that is that's about the scale that we can resolve with the very best instruments that we have today in the nearest by galaxies, namely in what we can see before we, even the best seeing of the Hubble Space Telescope begins to blur away. And that's what we define as the center. If the object is a spiral galaxy, like the Milky Way or Andromeda, then the nucleus also means the center of rotation. It's very close to the center of mass of the entire system. Not always, but that's kind of a filigree that we're still kind of struggling with in the field. Now, in normal galaxies, in ordinary galaxies, even like our own Milky Way or Andromeda, or actually most of the galaxies I've been showing you, be they ellipticals or spirals, if I look inside the central nucleus of these galaxies, what I tend to find is a very dense central star cluster. It's the bottom of the gravity well, so stuff tends to pile up. You form stars there, it's very, very dense. The sky would be extremely bright with stars if we were circling a planet near the center of our own galaxy. If I look at this from afar and put a spectrograph down on top of the center of a galaxy, which tends to be the brightest thing that I can see in that galaxy, what I get out of the spectrograph looks like a whole bunch of stellar spectra just all mashed up together. And in fact, because the brightest stars in an older, evolved stellar population, which is what I usually find inside the center of a galaxy, because we're in the center of the disk and bulge, especially of spirals, or the center of the bulge in an elliptical, is going to be a specter of giant stars. I see K giants and M giants. And so I see them all mashed together, and of course they're orbiting around and buzzing around, so I get some of the specter of the stars are blue shifted as they move towards me, some are red shifted as they move away, and so the lines get kind of fat and, and fuzzy because we're actually seeing the internal motions of this. Occasionally, what I also see are very weak nebular emission lines. The same types of emission lines I might see from planetary nebulae in very high excitation cases, to H2 regions, basically gas clouds illuminated by hot stars. And that's why I see in the normal galaxies, I look at the ratios of the lines and compare that to specter of other things. And in fact, in galaxies like, you know, large, fat, big arm spirals, what you actually find in the nucleus looks just like an H2 region. It looks like a region where recent stars have actually formed. And sometimes we do, in fact, find a lot of star formation going on in the centers of galaxies, in normal galaxies. But so far, what we've seen is nothing out of the ordinary. It just looks like a pile up of stars and maybe a little star formation, usually in the SC-type galaxies rather than SB or SA, but it looks more or less normal. And in fact, we call these normal galaxies for that reason. Our own Milky Way looks superficially normal. This is, again, this beautiful picture we've seen before of the central regions of our galaxy viewed from inside of our own galaxy. And deep inside, you can see there's a little bit of dust and, and crud in front of it, but you can see there's a, a little central star cluster. It gets a little brighter down towards the nucleus. This is in the constellation of Sagittarius. 
And this bright spot is, in fact, a central dense star cluster about eight kiloparsecs away from us. But this looks can be deceiving because, as we, as we saw at the end of the lecture on the Milky Way and Andromeda last week, if I dig deep down, down in the center, this star cluster is extremely dense. There's some very hot stars down here. And if I dig down into the very deepest parts of the central star cluster, I find those stars are actually in motion. They're not simply orbiting around the common center of mass of all the stars, but something else. And in fact, we saw this beautiful movie, which was made from data basically from 1992 up through about 2005, and then projected further along. Some of those stars are moving very, very fast indeed. Some of them are moving at thousands of kilometers per second of orbital speed, and they're moving around a center of orbit which contains nothing. Nothing that we can see. Maybe a little bit of faint X-rays, turns out. A little bit of faint radio emission. It's often referred to as Sagittarius A star because it was seen as a very, very weak radio source. But if I measure the orbits of these, apply Newton's version of Kepler's third law, what I find to my surprise is that the darkness they seem to be circling is a black hole whose mass is approximately 3.7 times 10 to the 6 solar masses. It's a million times the mass of the sun. And yet it's otherwise invisible. It doesn't shine in visible light. It doesn't shine in infrared. Actually, this is infrared light. Maybe a little bit of radio emission. Maybe a little bit of x-rays. But even it's not the brightest x-ray source in the center of our galaxy. There are binary stars with much smaller black holes that are far brighter within our own galaxy. In Andromeda, we find dynamical evidence of a black hole of nearly 100 million times the mass of the sun, and yet nothing is shining from it. What's going on here? Well, if it is shining a little bit, like I said, Milky Way galaxies, central black hole, is shining a little bit at x-rays and radio. And if I compute how much matter should be falling onto a black hole to produce that amount, it's, it's tiny. Maybe the mass of the Earth per year or a little bit more? What would happen if I could find the, the faucet that's pouring matter onto this thing and crank it all the way up? What if I could dump onto it not the mass of the Earth, but the mass of an entire star every year? What would happen then if I dumped that much matter onto a black hole? Well, what we think happens is it lights up extremely bright. In about 1% of all galaxies that I look at, both ellipticals and spirals, when I take the picture, like a picture of our Milky Way or some of those photos we've seen of galaxies, what I see in the middle is not a central star cluster, but a bright star-like source of light. It's extremely small, it's extremely compact and extremely bright. In some of these objects, that source actually outshines the entire galaxy. I see that central source before I see the 100 billion stars in the galaxy. It's extremely compact, as near as we can tell in most cases. It's extremely bright. And the brightest of these things, it outshines an entire galaxy. And then I put a spectrograph on it. I say, well, that's kind of weird. Let's take a spectrum and see what it's made of. And I don't see a composite spectrum of stars. I see whopping bright emission lines coming from a hot, cool, hot, very, very low-density gas, or at least apparently low-density at first sight, But the widths of the lines, which should be representing the orbital motions of the gas clouds, are thousands of kilometers a second, in some cases 10, 20, 30,000 kilometers a second. 30,000 kilometers a second is one-tenth the speed of light. These objects have extremely high excitation. This gas is extremely hot. I see atoms with many electrons stripped off. And when I point things like radio telescopes and X-ray telescopes, I find these things are crushingly bright radio and X-ray sources in many cases. They're emitting light at all wavelengths. 
Furthermore, if I watch them night after night, sometimes even within the course of a single night, the region can vary in brightness dramatically. Usually, this brightness variation takes of order a couple of days to change. Well, if I see something varying on day time scales in a region like this, and I know I'm looking at a system of gas orbiting around, the time scale of variation tells me roughly how much time it takes light to travel from one side of the object to another. I might see the continuum, the, the broad range of colors across the rainbow, go up and down, and then all of a sudden, maybe 10, 12 days later, or even two days later, one of the emission lines will suddenly go up, mimicking the pattern that I saw four or five days before. What I'm seeing is a light echo in the system. That means these objects can outshine a, uh, outshine an entire galaxy consisting of hundreds of billions of stars, and yet is only light days across. For reference, our solar system from the sun to Pluto is a half a light day. So here are objects the size of our solar system embedded in the centers of galaxies shining with the light of hundreds of billions of suns at all wavelengths. These are extremely mysterious sources when they're found. They're rare, but they require explanation. Here's some pictures of what these look like. This is one of these objects. This has got the name NGC 5548. It's just the 5,548th entry in the new general catalog of galaxies. This is a beautiful photograph taken with the Hubble Space Telescope. You can see the fuzz from the entire galaxy around it. This is a Milky Way-sized galaxy, but look deep down in the center. It's a bright, completely saturated star. This is an extremely bright source. In fact, when we point a ground-based telescope at this, and we've got the guide acquisition camera turned down, we, the first thing we see is the star-like nucleus. I have to crank up the camera's contrast all the way to begin to see the fuzz of the galaxy underneath. If I watch this over the course of many days, this in fact is a, a project that Bradley Peterson here at The Ohio State University and, and I have been involved in for many years now, watching and monitoring the variability in one of the emission lines, we see this thing varies. This is a course of 1998, 1988 to 1996. It varies by as much as almost a factor of five to six over the course of many years. These things are bouncing up and down, but it's an irregular pattern. It's not a pulsation pattern like a Cepheid or, or, or a Lyrae. It's actually something much more chaotic going on in here. Sometimes it's very faint. Sometimes it's extremely bright. It goes through outbursts. If I take a look at the spectrum, of one of these things. This is in the bottom is actually a spectrum of this particular object. I compare that to the spectrum of a normal galaxy. Normal galaxies tend to show absorption lines. This is not a noise spectrum. That's just all the absorption lines from all the stars in the nucleus overlapping with each other. They're lines of iron. This particular cluster of lines here are lines of magnesium. There's lines of, of calcium over here. Hydrogen is sitting over here. And occasionally, you get weak emission lines. This is a weak emission line of hot hydrogen gas. Here's basically hot hydrogen and nitrogen gas. Those little blips there don't look like much. It's actually sulfur gas. But then we go down here to one of these active galaxies. And the galaxy spectrum is still there, but it's completely swamped by these huge emission lines here. The widths of these emission lines imply gas motions, Doppler motions of up to about 10,000 kilometers a second. These are lines of oxygen. This is extremely high excitation gas. In fact, when the first spectra of these were taken in the 1940s, people remarked that some of the spectra looked like planetary nebulae, like something really, really hot. But then they had these big, fat, broad lines and didn't know what to call them. A guy named Carl Seifert 
1943, classified about six of these objects with these odd lines. And we now refer to some of these, these objects like NGC 5548 generically as Seifert galaxies. Used to be Seifert's galaxies, but now we found so many more, it's now turned from basically a possessive into just a regular old noun. So people knew about these things, but they had no idea what was going on. They just, they were weird, they were peculiar, they're freaks. In the 1960s, radio astronomers studying the sky in radio wavelengths using the then new technologies. Really, radio astronomy didn't get started really until after the Second World War, in large measure because of wartime advances in radar technology. That actually led to the development of radio astronomy. People had done stuff in the 30s, but it really took off in the 50s and 60s. Radio astronomers mapping out the sky very crudely at first, because their telescopes were pretty crude, found there were some extremely bright radio point sources in the sky. They knew some of them were point sources, unresolved, even though their telescopes were pretty crappy, kind of like looking at the sky with my glasses off. Because every now and then, one of them was in the right position for the moon to pass in front of it. And it was noticed when the moon passed between us and the source, it weaked out right away. So it had to be really, really tiny. Once you had a localization for where this radio point source is, they pointed the big telescope, biggest telescopes we had, mostly then the 200-inch Palomar at the site, and took a photograph, and what you saw was a really, really bright star there. Well, it was bright, relatively speaking. But if you looked at the photograph really closely, there was a little bit of fuzz around it. But you could just, people argued what was the fuzz around these objects. Now, they looked like stars, but they were a little bit not like the images of stars, so they called them quasi-stars. Because these were quasi-stellar radio sources, people don't like to say quasi-stellar radio source too much, so the name got shortened to Quasar. Not the name of a brand of televisions, perhaps, but in fact, a shortened for quasi-stellar radio source. Now, when they turned the telescopes to them, found a localization, ooh, there's a really weird, bright, kind of bluish, fuzzy-looking thing, but mostly star-like. All right, let's get a spectrum. These were photographic spectra, so it took hours upon hours to get a spectrum of these things. And when they got them, they didn't know what the hell they were looking at. None of the lines were identifiable. They were bright, huge emission lines. But no one recognized them at all. People started licking up all kinds of wacky stuff. Maybe it's europium lines, some kind of weird radio white dwarf star, or something like that. They just simply didn't recognize them. They knew where all the other lines were from stars, from emission line, nebulae in the galaxy, but these lines didn't match any of that stuff. So this was the riddle of the quasars. There were these objects with bright emission lines. The lines were unidentified. Were they made of unidentified stuff? You know, something on the periodic table? Were they made of rare stuff and we were just seeing some extremely wacky excitation conditions? They didn't even know whether they were in the galaxy or far away. They had no clue what these things were. Here's a picture of one of these quasars. This is quasar 3C273. The 3C is refers to the third Cambridge catalog of radio sources. There was a first and second catalog. We don't ask about that. It was pretty crude, and it was the 273rd member. It's a very, very bright radio source. This is a Hubble Space Telescope picture, but when you look at it, it's just crushingly bright point source. And this is kind of funny wisp of junk over here, and maybe you can see faint fuzz, but you know, you gotta really punch down on it to see it. You can just barely see that it was slightly fuzzy. Well, what was going on? Well, this riddle was actually solved in 1963 by Professor Martin Schmidt, who was then at Caltech. Martin was actually one of my teachers when I was an undergraduate at Caltech. He was puzzling over this spectrum and then realized, oh, I get it. The emission lines here, 
They're at the wrong wavelengths because this object has a gigantic Doppler shift. It's been shifted so far into the red beyond the speed of any galaxy we had yet measured. What he was seeing, the big bright lines, were not europium or some wacky element. It was hydrogen. It's just the hydrogen lines have been shifted so far to red wavelengths, everyone's internal mapping of where they should have been was wrong because no one had ever seen an object with that big a Doppler shift before. If the Doppler shift was due to the expansion of the universe, which in fact it seems to be, these objects had to be extremely far away. Well, if they're extremely far away, and yet they're really bright in appearance, they must be hugely luminous. Their luminosity must be gigantic. And the fuzz, that's an entire galaxy of stars. This object's so far away, this galaxy would be virtually invisible. It's letting us know it's there because of these bright centers inside of them. The problem... This was a great, great success for Martin Schmidt and, and others. And, and immediately people began to go back and reinterpret the lines they saw in the spectra. In fact, some of the lines they saw in the spectra of some of these objects, the reason they didn't recognize them is because those lines are normally out in the ultraviolet part of the spectrum that's blocked by the atmosphere. No one had ever seen them outside the laboratory. But the Doppler shift, the red shift, had actually moved the wavelengths red enough to bring them into the visible part of the spectrum. That means these things were moving a significant fraction of the speed of light. Well, the problem immediately became when you calculated their luminosity, their total power. These things were far more intense than anything anyone had ever seen, and yet they were the size from the variability of our solar system. We didn't know of any power source that could produce that much energy in that small a space. Stars can do it. Stars can only convert matter to energy at 0.7% mc squared. No cluster of stars could be bright enough to explain the quasars. So even though people now understood that they were in other galaxies, they were the brightest things compared to... See they were basically Seifert's galaxies with the brightness knob cranked all the way to 11. They didn't know what was powering them. And they realized that that means they didn't really know what was powering Seifert's galaxies either. Well, we'll jump ahead. What are they? The quasars, we now know, are not a separate weird class of objects. They are, in fact, the most luminous examples of the active galactic nucleus phenomenon. But they're extreme objects. They are the most luminous and energetic sources in the universe in terms of sustained total power output. Okay, for a few seconds, supernova explosions, gamma ray bursts, things like that can actually outshine quasars, but only for a few seconds. Indications of some of these things indicate that they have been powering out that kind of power for millions of years, at least. We don't know the exact quasar lifetime yet, but the supposition is it's anywhere, the current estimates are about 100 million years, and they're pumping out more power than a galaxy is full of hundreds of billions of stars. The very brightest of these things have luminosities of basically 100 trillion times the luminosity of the sun, 10 to the 14 L sun. Okay. The brightest quasars, because they're so luminous, can be seen extremely far away before they become too faint in apparent brightness because of their distance. They are among the most distant objects in the universe. The current record holder for distance may in fact be a bright star-forming galaxy. But for decades, the distance record holders, when you found the, the currently most distant identifiable object in the universe, were always quasars. The most distant of these is about four gigaparsecs away. Now, I know my notes say two gigaparsecs, and I looked at that number last night and went, oh, man, I did that wrong. Well, I make mistakes, too. Four gigaparsecs away in round numbers is we're looking at an object whose light left it almost 13, 12 billion years ago. So these are extremely far away. In fact, they are among the first objects to have formed in the universe luminous enough for us to see today.
they allow us, this makes them very useful to us because they become probes of the universe on the very most distant scales. They're things I can see because they are intrinsically so energetic, they're still visible even though they're across, almost literally, the visible extent of our universe. So quasars have become extremely important to us, just as cosmic beacons. This to give you some idea of just what these things look like, here's actually at the time was a very, was originally when this picture was taken, this was the most distant object in the universe. It has since been superseded. This has been found by the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, a digital map of, the, of a large section of the northern hemisphere sky. Uh, one of its goals was to find distant quasars. This little faint red blob is in fact a highly redshifted quasar. It is sitting out approximately, I think this one that in particular is about three gigaparsecs away. It's one of the most distant objects. It's a little tiny faint thing. It's getting right down at the level. You see all the speckles here is the noise in the detector. This is getting right down to the level of our ability to find things I can take a spectrum of. So this is, a, this is how far away they get. Compare that to 3C273, that bright in-your-face quasar, which happens, by the way, to still be the closest large bright quasar that we know of. Um, we're pretty sure we know of that part of the sky. Now, here's one of the places where your notes change. The AGN Zoo, it turns out that we have a lot of language. Before you understand what a phenomenon is, you name it, you describe it, you know, type 1, type 2, pop 1, pop 2, that kind of stuff, and then you come to some physical understanding. Sometimes when you do that, you get rid of a lot of superfluous language. Remember, spectral classification was A, B, C, D, E, F, G, all the way up through a whole bunch of letters, and it got rearranged into O, B, A, F, G, K, M, L when people actually began to understand how they worked. The same is true of active galaxies. There used to be page upon page. It was almost like being a botanist for the different end galaxies, this kind of galaxy, that kind of galaxy. We've actually begun over the last few years, and this is work even I've been involved in a little bit, is starting sort of sort of narrowing down that language. We're now understanding that all of the different weird objects that we saw that we sort of lumped into the active galaxy class really are all the same objects physically. The basic differences turn out to be differences in their total brightness and where that brightness is coming out in the electromagnetic spectrum. And so I'm going to take something which is even going to make some of my colleagues who may or may not be listening in on the podcast upset. I'm going to break it down into three basic classes. Quasars, we generally mean today to be the most luminous of the active galactic nuclei. These are the bright ones. These are the ones that can outshine an entire galaxy. Seifert galaxies, those go back to the work of Carl Seifert in 1943, are the low luminosity quasars. These are the objects which are bright enough to be about as bright as their galaxy or maybe as bright as the bulge in the galaxy, but they don't quite aspire to that crush everything in sight bright glare of a quasar. And they extend to extremely low luminosities. We recognize things as Seifert nuclei in nearby galaxies that if you put your thumb over the nucleus, you'd have no clue it was there. It's just they really are very faint. And finally, there's a third class of objects which actually spans both of these, which we call radio galaxies. They have a lot of the same properties as either quasars or Seiferts, but what distinguishes them is if I look at how the energy is distributed over the entire electromagnetic spectrum, these are unusually bright at radio wavelengths. These are producing a tremendous amount of radio intensity, and they're in fact among the first of the true quasars that were found. We've kind of We've become sloppy in our language. We now refer to things as quasars, which actually aren't bright radio sources. But, you know, it's often the name takes on a life of its own, whatever its original meaning was. 
Some of these objects are interesting because when I map them at radio wavelengths, they show spectacular jets of radiation coming out of the central galaxy. Some of those jets can extend for hundreds of kiloparsecs. Now, your textbook, when it talks about AGN in that chapter, basically just shows a bunch of pictures of radio galaxies. Unfortunately, that actually distorts the reality of what active galaxies are like. I put radio galaxies last because they, in fact, are the rarest type of active galaxy. They make for spectacular graphics in a textbook, but they turn out to be the rarest of the rare in terms of the actual zoo of active galaxies. Quasars and Seaford galaxies are the most common and actually the more fundamental objects. But, you know, textbook publishers, they've got to put pretty pictures in to sell their books, and the radio galaxies look cool, but they're kind of a sideshow compared to the story I'm trying to tell. Well, this whole problem of the quasars is these things are crushingly luminous. They're putting out a tremendous amount of power. Billions of suns, and in some of the brightest things, a hundred trillion suns worth of power. They're doing it in a sustained fashion, and they're doing it from a region which variability tells us is only about the size of our solar system. That's a tremendously difficult problem to crack. So, we need to explain these properties. It isn't enough just simply to describe them. We need to explain what's going on physically. The first thing we need to explain is what makes them so powerful. How do I achieve a power output of billions of trillions of suns? Furthermore, remember stars only emit radiation from kind of ultraviolet to infrared. These things are pumping out energy from the highest energy gamma rays that we've seen so far all the way down to the longest wavelength radio we've seen. They light up the entire electromagnetic spectrum. They're incredible objects. They're just the ultimate multi-wavelength source. They're also compact. They're small. Their regions are only light days across. That's barely bigger than our own solar system, and yet they're pumping out galaxies' worth of power. The X-rays in some of these things vary on time scales of hours. In fact, I've done a couple of experiments in recent years where we've stared for thousands of seconds at one of these active galaxies, basically trying to watch it to build up a spectrum, because you sort of get you know, like a photon per second or so. And this thing is just flickering like a, like a badly lit fluorescent light, just flickering like mad in X-rays. This thing's varying up and down. We have no idea what's happening. These things are very incredibly fast. How do you do that? That means some of the structures inside of this thing are light hours or light minutes across. To give you an idea again of scale, the Earth to the Sun is eight light minutes. So we're talking about things of order the scale of the inner solar system. And yet they're punching out x-rays and power like you couldn't believe. Well, the explanation that we've come to after a lot of false starts over the last 40 years is what I'll refer to as the black hole paradigm. What a paradigm is, it's a, it's a conceptual toolkit. It's a framework for asking questions. We start out with a basic explanation and begin to see if that explanation has predictive power and actually helps to inform the discovery and understanding of new phenomena. And the black hole paradigm has emerged in the last few decades is exceedingly powerful in this way. An energy source that we can tap is gravitational energy. If you have a very large compact mass, of which a black hole is the best candidate, we can actually dump matter onto it, a process called accretion, and you can liberate gravitational energy. Now, the requirements for this is that they be supermassive. Supermassive means masses between a million and a billion times the mass of the sun. The Schwarzschild radius is the size of the event horizon, and you'll remember that it's roughly, it, not roughly, it is directly proportional to the mass of the black hole. A one solar mass black hole, you'll remember, has an event horizon with a Schwarzschild radius of three kilometers. That's 
barely bigger than this campus. So if I go up to a million or a billion times the mass of the sun, the Schwarzschild radius is a million kilometers. Well, remember an astronomical unit is 150 million kilometers. A billion is three billion kilometers. Well, three billion kilometers is 20 astronomical units. That's barely to the orbit of Uranus. So that gives us compact. A black hole of very large mass is very compact, just because the Schwarzschild radius is small. The mass means I have a tremendous gravitational well, because there's, ten, there's a billion solar masses down the center of one of these full things. So as I dump matter into this tremendous gravitational well, that matter is going to be heated and compressed as it falls in. And just below it's, just before it slips through the event horizon, that gas can achieve temperatures closing on x-rays. So I take the gas, cold interstellar gas from the outside, drop it in. And as it drops in, it begins to heat up. As it heats in temperature, it'll begin to heat up first in the infrared, through visible, through ultraviolet, to hard ultraviolet, soft x-rays, hard x-rays, all the way up into gamma rays. So it allows me to have a huge range of temperature from inner to outer parts of the accretion region that allows me to light up and emit all over the electromagnetic spectrum. The gas, as it falls in, doesn't just simply fall in from all directions. It actually settles down into an immense rotating disk. All matter seems to want to have a little bit of angular momentum to it, especially in a galaxy that's rotating. And so what we can imagine is a black hole, a very large, supermassive black hole, surrounded by a rotating disk of gas. As I go from the outer parts of that disk to the inner parts, it gets progressively hotter because you're getting closer to the black hole. The shears, the tidal forces, everything are increasing as you get close to the monster heating up to all the way to the point that you're almost at x-rays by the time just before you fall into the black hole. This is matter draining into the black hole, emitting light as it compressed and heated, tapping gravitational energy from the black hole. Here's a cartoon of what one of these things might look like. You get very cool on the outside. You get hotter and hotter as you move into the inside until you finally get white hot. And in the very proximity to the black hole, you get so hot, you actually can't see the black hole buried inside. As you dump stuff in, you also will have a slight reflex, which will cause you to blow stuff out, especially if there are magnetic fields. And so while you dump about half of the matter you have going in, up to about the other half could be blown out the poles as a jet, accelerated by very strong magnetic fields. So there's a lot of fascinating, very energetic phenomena which can occur in the proximity of a black hole. Well, it's one thing to say, I can get gravitational energy out, but we have to do the same thing we did when we talked about the power source of the sun. That power source had better be efficient enough that I can actually convert matter into energy through that mechanism. Kelvin-Helmholtz mechanism is not very efficient. It can't work in the sun for more than about 30 million years. Nuclear fusion can work for about 10 billion years, but I can only get about 0.7% of mc squared. Black hole accretion turns out to be fearsomely efficient. 10% of mc squared. It's a huge amount of energy that can come out. That's more than 100 times more. No, oh, I got that number right? No, I about screwed that number up, but good. 10% efficient, way more efficient than nuclear fusion. I'm not going to try to do that math in my head. In fact, in the most luminous quasars, the amount of matter I have to funnel into the black hole to get the power out that I see is only only, he says, a solar mass per year. I have to feed it the amount of matter in one sun-sized star. Well, galaxies contain billions to hundreds of billions of solar masses of raw cold gas. 
So I only have to bleed it in at a very small amount because the power source is so efficient. Now, where do you get the gas? You get it from the surrounding galaxies. You somehow get gas from the disk of the galaxy or from nearby stars. Maybe you swallow a whole star and rip it apart with tides. The shreds then fall into a disk and fall in. There's lots of ways to do this. A lot of my research over the last few years has been using the Hubble Space Telescope to try to find hints as to how that gas actually does the funneling trick into the center. We find lots of plausible ways to do this, although we haven't answered the question yet. Now, the black hole is not just sitting there. In some of these cases, the black hole can be spinning very, very rapidly. It picks up some of the spin from what formed it. This acts like a particle accelerator. A rapidly spinning black hole at the bottom of an accretion disk can throw out almost half the mass that tries to fall in gets redirected into twin jets blowing out the poles. Magnetic fields allow you to accelerate it, and it's just like the biggest particle accelerator that makes my physics colleagues just drool to think about. These jets can blast matter out at very close to the speed of light. It tunnels its way out of the galaxy and can extend for hundreds of kiloparsecs away, giving rise to the bright radio galaxies. So the difference between a quasar and a Seifert is simply the amount of luminosity. The difference between quasars and Seiferts in the radio galaxies may, we don't know for sure, but the best ideas we have to date may have to do with how fast that black hole is spinning. A rapidly spinning black hole may be able to power these unusual radio jets because what we're seeing is the acceleration of electrons and protons in this sort of galactic particle accelerator down in the center. We have enough energy in the black hole to do that the energy of the black hole spin. Imagine something spinning that's a billion times the mass of the sun. has got a wickedly high rotational energy to it, and you're tapping it by anchoring into magnetic fields. So we've got the energy. The trick is whether we can actually get that energy out efficiently. That's why I say maybe, because we're not exactly sure how to do that trick yet. But we do see the jets. This is the central elliptical galaxy in the Virgo cluster. M87. In 1906, people saw this funny linear feature in even deep photographs. This is a beautiful picture with the Hubble Space Telescope. This ghostly blue light is, in fact, the light from electrons accelerated in magnetic fields. There is a black hole in the center. We use the stellar rotation and the gas motions deep inside of one to three billion times the mass of the sun. This is a gigantic elliptical galaxy. It has a gigantic black hole buried in the center. And part of that black hole must be rapidly spinning. And here's one half of the particle accelerator. The particles out here are moving at 99.9 something, the percent, the speed of light. It's incredibly powerful, a particle accelerator. Now, there's some nagging questions that we have to ask about these things. I'd always like to say that I know the complete story of, of, of black holes, but I'd be lying to you. I don't. I don't know the complete story of active galactic nuclei. That's what makes it such a fascinating topic of, of study for myself and my colleagues. One of the big questions I've left unanswered, because I don't know the answer to it, is how do you get a supermassive black hole? How do you get black holes of 100 million, million, a billion times the mass of the sun? We know how to build them up to about 10 solar masses, 15 solar masses in supernovae, but how do I glom enough of those together to make up a million times the mass of the sun? We don't know for sure, but it seems to be coupled somehow to the formation of galaxies. Because what I find is the very biggest galaxies have the very biggest black holes. Smaller galaxies have smaller black holes in proportion. 
So something about the galaxy knows how to make a black hole of the right proportional size in a very surprising relationship. And one of some of the work I've been doing over the last few years is trying to understand that correlation better so we can help out the theorists to explain how that can happen. How are they fueled? How do I get a solar mass per year into a black hole in the very center? It's a real trick. Galaxy interactions are one way to do this. We saw interactions yesterday. The tidal torques in those interactions can actually cause the entire interstellar medium to get dumped into the nucleus. Stellar bars, those funny, long, elongated bits that we saw the other day, those actually act kind of like impellers. They can actually torque and force gas from the outer parts of the galaxy inward. Paul Martini, who just joined our faculty and I, showed a couple of years ago that in a lot of bars you can see the dust looking like stuff draining down a bathtub hole to the very smallest scales you can see with Hubble. And the gas inflow rates are maybe, maybe not about right to feed at least a low luminosity AGN. Or maybe during this cannibalism process where you eat the gas-rich dwarfs around you, maybe you deliver one of those on an orbit which delivers its gas right to the nucleus, sort of basically galactic takeout. In this case, you now deliver a million times the mass of the sun. It boils its way down into the nucleus, settles into a disk, and the black hole, which was normally silent because it wasn't suddenly fed, suddenly finds itself getting fed and begins to light up. Remember, only 1% of galaxies show these bright active nuclei. The Milky Way and Andromeda have gigantic black holes in them that are virtually silent. Why? We think it's because they're starved. What happens if we suddenly dropped a dwarf galaxy into the Milky Way and started feeding that monster? It might actually become one of the brightest things in the night sky. Here's examples of images of quasar host galaxies that give some reason to believe that interactions are important. This one looks normal. That one, it's a little bit disturbed. But these quasars, something's whacking really heavy on these guys. This is one of the parts of very luminous quasars. You've got to get a lot of fuel to the center. Interactions are a wonderful way to do it. And this really comes down to a final question, which I'm not going to go through all these points, but just simply give the basic idea. One of the surprises of the last 10 years of research is the recognition that supermassive black holes are not just in the AGN. They're everywhere, perhaps, inside the centers of all galaxies. Nearly every spiral shows some level of activity. There's some dynamical evidence. You can see the stars moving faster than they should be as if there were black holes of million or billion times the mass of the sun, but those galaxies are totally inactive. The Milky Way is three million solar masses, but inactive. There were lots of active galaxies as I look out into the distant past. When I look into the universe, I look into the distant past, quasars were common, but they're not common today. There's only one really nearby. So where have all the quasars gone? Maybe they're the black inactive galaxies, inactive black holes inside of galaxy nuclei. And the galaxies know something about their presence. Active galaxies aren't a sideshow. They may in fact be the signposts of the formation of galaxies. That's why they're so exciting to study today. Any questions? All right, I'll see you all tomorrow then.